Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and SWE's blog all together at altogether.swe.org. Greetings and welcome to Backstory, part of the SWE Diverse podcast series. Here we'll explore interesting topics that we uncover in our research for SWE magazine articles yet that for various reasons don't make it into print. I'm Ann Perusik, SWE's Director of Editorial and Publications. And I'm John Riesfeld, a SWE magazine writer based in Baltimore, Maryland. We're calling today's episode, If She Can See It, She Can Be It, which happens to be the motto of the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, or GDI, We'll be looking at GDI's important role as the first and only research-based organization to track gender bias in children's and family-oriented films and TV shows. The group was founded in 2004 by Academy Award-winning actor Gina Davis, and it has examined the content of hundreds of top-grossing films and popular TV shows that are seen by children in order to identify and call attention to the presence of gender bias, with a special emphasis on girls. So John, when you first came across the Institute, you were researching a story about the 10th anniversary of Changing the Conversation, or CTC, which was engineering's first rebranding effort, right? Yes. uh, I was looking at how uh, the CTC rebranding of engineering as a creative problem-solving discipline had influenced a decade of corporate-sponsored STEM diversity TV ads. But it turns out that its influence in this respect had been limited. The corporate STEM diversity ads produced after the study's release in 2008 rarely mentioned engineering by name, and treated the STEM acronym as if it were a word without the component parts of science, technology, engineering, or math. Since most people think of STEM as a stand-in for science, the ads did little to boost either awareness or understanding of engineering as a profession. Oh yes, to the point about people equating STEM as a stand-in for science, I frequently heard people question like, well, where is the E in STEM? because engineering seemed to be overlooked in so much of the coverage. Well, how did your exploration of changing the conversation lead you to GDI? Well, early in my research, I came across GDI's findings about how popular TV programs, movies, and commercials had for decades shown gender bias in the way they portrayed girls and women. I had wanted to include those findings in my story, But once the article's focus shifted away from TV ads, much of that early research, including my interview with Madeline Donano, GDI's CEO, became less relevant. Yes, your story was titled Changing the Conversation Turns 10, and it appeared in the spring issue of Sway Magazine. In it, you broke the news that the Ad Council was preparing the first multi-year national ad campaign to promote STEM diversity and that it would likely air sometime in the fall. The campaign began in September, and you wrote about it in our current conference issue of SWE. You've mentioned that the Ad Council campaign, GDI, and CTC are all related. How is that? 
Well, and one of the main goals of the committee that produced the CTC rebranding effort had been to inspire a high-visibility national ad campaign exclusively about engineering, which unfortunately never happened. But the Ad Council's She Can STEM campaign could be the next best thing. It will be a massive, multi-year effort that will use $30 million a year in donated online traditional uh, television ads and other national advertising exposure to deliver its message. It also uses a clever device to raise the visibility of each STEM subcomponent, the science, technology, engineering, and math. Well, in that respect alone, the Ad Council campaign would be performing a valuable service, but there is more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, uh, the Ad Council had adopted GDI's official motto, which was, quote, if she can see it, she can be it, end quote, as its creative strategy. Uh, and to that end, it's using cool women in STEM to serve as role models for young girls who listen to the ads. Each campaign ad highlights different role models and emphasizes the STEM letters that correspond to the specific disciplines that contribute to their STEM careers. In that way, the campaign also serves to educate the public about how different STEM disciplines contribute to varying kinds of STEM careers, and that gives those disciplines heightened visibility. So the campaign conveys at least two important messages at the same time. One would be identifying the different STEM disciplines, and the other is regarding females in STEM careers. You know, I heard Gina Davis speak at an event I attended about seven or eight years ago, and I was pretty impressed. At the time, she shared a very personal perspective, one that I think resonates with most moms, which is that we tend to become hyper-aware and vigilant when we do things with our young children. We notice things that we might not have otherwise even paid attention to. In fact, she said that she first noticed gender bias on TV when she was at home watching television with her young daughter. Well, you know, uh, I can say from my own experience that when we become parents, you know, we, we really do start to view the world a bit differently. And we question things that we may have ignored in the past. Yes, that's really true. Well, Davis observed that most of the characters in the children's shows were male and that they seemed to be most doing most of the interesting stuff. The female characters uh, tended to have less on-screen time, and they spoke a lot less often than the male characters. They were rarely cast as leaders in society or in the workplace, and most of them didn't work. Those who did work were shown doing very traditional, kind of stereotypical female jobs. Yeah. And, you know, once that's pointed out, the bias seems obvious, I think, to the individual, but um, most people would just take these portrayals for granted. Yes. And so what happened is Davis became concerned. Back then, children were spending an average of seven to 10 hours a day in front of the TV. So she wondered what would be the long-term effect of repeated exposure to these self-limiting and biased portrayals of women. What, what effect would that have on her daughter and her peers? Could it lower their future career aspirations or the future career aspirations of even an entire generation of young girls? So Davis founded the Institute, which I believe is now headquartered at Mount St. Mary's University in Los Angeles. Yes. And she also, she and her team began the difficult task of trying to figure out how to measure and track the presence of gender bias in movies and TV shows. 
She also made the politically astute decision to operate the Institute as an awareness and advocacy group within the entertainment industry, rather than attempting to promote the issue of gender bias in media directly to the public. Yeah, I think that was really smart because it made GDI an ally in an ongoing effort just to make the industry's products better. And let's face it, to the extent that gender bias was a problem, it would only be addressed with the active cooperation and support of those who are creating the content. So that would be the writers, the directors, the producers, casting directors, studio moguls, and the media executives. You're absolutely right, Anne. And, you know, the Institute also wisely decided to limit its focus to girls age 11 and under, a point which uh, CEO Madeline Donano explained during our interview. We focus on... Uh, yeah, children under the age of, of 11. Girls fall out of STEM in fourth grade. Everyone is trying to get girls, you know, into STEM. So it's really key to get to that zero to 11 group. That's the greatest impact on girls. Yes, so much of the research we've seen at SWE supports that point. How does GDI make its case to the industry? That's an interesting uh, question because GDI sponsors studies uh, about public attitudes toward gender bias in film and on television. And it also tracks what happens on screen in both media, and it does it down to the individual frame. They look at things like the percent of lead characters that are male versus female, the amount of screen time they get, what percentages have speaking roles, how often they speak, the quality of that speech, and you know how male and female characters are used to drive the story's plot. Well, what kind of gender bias has the Institute found? Uh, well, the Institute's research arm, which is cjane.org, and which I recommend our audience check out, analyzed 122 of the most popular films that had been seen by girls under age 11. These included top G, PG, and PG-13 rated films. This report contains some startling findings about gender disparities that happened to confirm Davis's initial suspicions. For instance, it found that women were disproportionately underrepresented. Male characters outnumbered female characters by three to one in terms of their on-screen time. And less than three out of every 10 characters with speaking roles were women. Uh, and they spoke far less often when they did speak than their male counterparts. What was the overall conclusion then of the study? Well, it said that women characters in children's and family films appeared to be, quote, seen but not heard, end quote. Well, that's a very concise way of putting it. And didn't the Institute also report that of the characters with careers, some 80% were male, even though the real workforce at that time was split almost equally between men and women? Yeah. Uh, and on this point, Donano was emphatic. She cited findings from a 2016 study that showed just how behind the times popular film and television programming had become, particularly in terms of how it portrayed the world of work. The fictional world was not keeping up with the real world. I recall that I think it was 25% of STEM careers were held by women. Mm -hmm. But when you looked at family films, it was 16%, and in prime time, it was only about, you know, 21% overall. So the, and then when you looked at engineering, 
it was, you know, 7%. It was at the time zero for prime time. It was only 7% in computer science. So, so the numbers in terms of fiction were far lower than right. even in reality. And maybe I would say, I don't know right now how many women hold STEM jobs in the U.S. Maybe it's gone up, I hope, from 24%. But at the time that we did this investigation, which was a few years ago, there was quite quite a lack. And, and then when we looked at STEM across the 10 largest film markets in the world, it was, you know, only 8.9% in engineering, zero in math. There was only five characters working in computer science. So globally it was about 11.6%, but not the true, you know, science engineering. I mean, life science doctors do fall under STEM, but where we've seen advancement in terms of portrayals of female characters in STEM is with regard to um, life sciences. So clearly we are seeing female characters represented as doctors, as surgeons, clearly. But what we haven't seen is when you look at uh, computer science, engineering, and mathematics, that's where you are not seeing female characters, you know, in STEM. So there, there does need to be a lot of, you know, improvement. Well, she's right. Most of women's gains in STEM have been in the life sciences. Sometimes people will talk about women's progress in STEM fields when, to be more precise, they're really referring to their increased participation in life sciences because the numbers in engineering and the physical sciences have not really changed. I'm curious, though, has the Institute noted any changes in women's attitudes toward this persistent display of bias? Does it give any indication of just how long women are willing to accept or put up with this? <laughs> Funny you should ask, Anne. Um, in 2017, just days before the Oscars, GDI released uh, sobering evidence of a shift in women's attitudes, a sense of growing impatience with the industry. The information came from a survey of women in the U.S. and the U.K., which was called, quote, Female Tribes Women's Index Study, unquote. It showed that women had started voting with their remotes, turning off certain biased programming. Such as? Films or TV shows that negatively stereotyped women characters or in which women characters were either underrepresented or missing entirely. Most of the women, something like 85%, said they agreed with the statement that went, sometimes I feel media and culture are blind to how much they stereotype women. Two-thirds had turned off shows that engaged in stereotyping. Meanwhile, one-fourth of all women surveyed and nearly half the U.S. female millennials reported that they had stopped watching a film or TV show simply because it had too few female characters in it. Well, that certainly sounds like valuable information for writers, directors, casting directors and producers, and uh, something they'd want to know about. The findings showed that women were raising the bar in terms of what they expect quality programming to deliver. Consider this. The study also found that women preferred content that portrayed their experiences accurately, 
and that included female characters from more diverse backgrounds. They also said they wanted to see more complex female characters featured in more central roles. And just in case the content creators hadn't quite gotten it yet, three quarters of the women in the U.S. and the U.K. also said they had had enough of the, quote, attractive, ditzy female character, end quote. <laughs> That's quite understandable. <laughs> that last comment makes me think, though, of the incredible success of the Wonder Woman movie, because Wonder Woman, while attractive, was certainly a no-nonsense, fearless, you could say lethal warrior, hardly a ditzy female character. And the movie had a record-breaking box office opening, a female director, and obviously a strong female lead. Did the study shed any light on the box office appeal or the bankability of female leads compared to male leads? Yes, it did. Uh, GDI examined the top 100 grossing non-animated films from 2014 and 15. Those with female leads had the highest average two-year gross revenues, coming in at just under $100 million per film. That was about 12% more than the $87 million average earned by films with male-female co-leads, and it was 26% higher than films with male leads only. That last group of films grossed just $73 million on average. While many factors determined box office success, the GDI study concluded that, quote, these numbers debunk the idea that female leads are not bankable. Well, John, with such a strong business argument to support giving women greater prominence in TV and film, why has the industry generally failed to do so? That's a great question, Anne, and I, I think the answer is twofold. It has to do with the nature of gender bias and also with the degree to which members of the entertainment industry have been exposed to the Institute's findings. Gender bias is deeply ingrained in the unconscious, the result of endless years of conditioning. Most people, including content creators, aren't doing this deliberately. They're generally unaware that unconscious bias is driving their actions. You know, we've written a lot about unconscious bias in the magazine, particularly in the literature reviews in the State of Women in Engineering issue. Unconscious bias is sometimes called implicit bias, and it's probably the single biggest reason why these old paradigms persist. In practice, it wouldn't seem that it would take much to create awareness of gender bias, but the subject and people's experiences actually are complex and multifaceted. The SWE Literature Review cites peer-reviewed research that asked young children to draw pictures of scientists and people from other STEM professions, and the people that they drew were men. However, this study has taken place um, repeatedly over time, and on a more optimistic note, one study compared those results over time and found that in more recent examples, more young children were drawing females when asked to draw a doctor. So in terms of the Gina Davis Institute's work, what kind of progress is being made both in how they perform their research and how the industry responds? Well, for the first 12 years of GDI's existence, all of its gender bias research was done by hand using people that were highly trained and how to track film and TV content objectively. All of that changed, however, in 2016, when GDI unveiled the Gina Davis Inclusion Quotient, which is a powerful new proprietary tool 
using artificial intelligence and machine reading to fully automate the tracking and analysis process. The GDIQ tool, as it's also known, has taken what was a tedious and potentially subjective process and made it completely objective and capable of measuring audio and video data down to the millisecond. Wow, well, that is quite a game changer. And what a great application of AI and machine learning. I would think this high degree of accuracy would make current Gina Davis Institute findings even more revealing and irrefutable. Has it increased GDI's influence with the entertainment media creative developers? And it certainly has. Yet, remarkably, the Institute already had a lot of influence. Back in 2013, an independent group surveyed all those who had attended the Institute's workshops to see, you know, what kind of impact GDI's findings had had on them. The results showed that GDI's direct impact was intense, uh, although it was limited in its reach. Only 25% of the attendees worked in GDI's primary area of entertainment industry focus, which was creating content for children and families. The rest, some three quarters, worked on live action animated film and TV and on web content intended for adults of all ages. Nevertheless, the study found that GDI is influencing the way girls and women are portrayed. Two thirds of the attendees said they had already applied lessons learned to their work. And this group included 86% of all male attendees. And within that group, it was most concentrated among men age 50 and older. Well, that sounds impressive. Yes. Uh, and beyond that, 25% said they already had used what they had learned on four or more projects. Another 41% said they had used it on three or more projects. And nearly seven out of 10 who attended had applied it on at least two projects. What specifically had they changed? One quarter of them had made changes uh, in their female characters' aspirations, occupations, or in the nature of their dialogue. About one in five changed the way they used women characters to advance the plot. And about one in six said they had created more female secondary characters. But probably most important of all, Anne, was that nearly four out of 10 attendees ranked, quote, the need to desexualize many female roles, unquote, as the most important takeaway they got from the training. Well, that's really substantial and clearly represents welcome progress toward less gender bias in TV programming and films. Yes, I'd say we're only starting to see the profound effects that the Institute's work will have on the entertainment industry in the future. That's very encouraging and also a great testament to the power of research. I'll say it is. It looks like all of us, but in particular women viewers, will owe a debt of gratitude to the dedicated people at the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. Yes, Anne, and it looks like the pace of change is actually starting to pick up. Well, thank you for listening to the first episode of Backstory. If she can see it, she can be it. In addition to this podcast, a transcript will be posted on SWE's Altogether site, altogether.swe.org. We encourage you to share the podcast or transcript and leave comments as well. Let us know what you think about gender bias in media. Share incidents that you felt were particularly troubling or showed progress. If you have found content that you think is really great, especially in terms of children's programming, 
let us and your colleagues know. Then join John and I next time for part two, when we explore the Scully effect and what GDI has discovered about the influence that a single empowered female character can have on generations of viewers. On behalf of John, myself, and everyone at SWE, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to explore additional offerings from SWE Advance at advancedlearning.swe.org. 